welcome to uh, the latest episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. Uh, I'm here, Scott Schober, your host from the East Coast, and I'm here with my brother, Craig Schober from the West Coast. How you doing there, Craig? Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm, uh, like you said, I'm on the West Coast, Long Beach, California. Um, what's new on your end? Not much. We had a, had a little bit more snow this morning, sleet that turned to snow. So weather a little crazy. Business is, is keeping me really busy here, getting a lot of orders across the line of, of our security products, our wireless test equipment, and uh, just trying to keep safe and healthy with the, the world of COVID out there, but doing good. Great. Well, what's the what's the story rundown real quick for this episode? Yeah, well, the, the first story we're going to cover is uh, from The Verge. Uh Half of the internet-connected devices in hospitals are vulnerable to hacks, and it's a nice report, and they outline some statistics and stuff. I thought we could chat about that a little bit. The second story is from Bleeping Computer. A developer corrupts open-source libraries on GitHub, impacting thousands of apps. And then finally, uh, the news broke this week, how Microsoft bought Activision Blizzard, and that's coming a story coming from the New York Times, so we could talk about that and share some of the st- statistics and things, but maybe before we jump right in, I uh, wanted to, to share with our, our listeners that this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast is brought to you by Cyberlytica, providing proactive cybercrime intelligence. To learn more about Cyberlytica, visit cyberlytica.com. And, uh, you know, before we jump into this first article, I thought I heard you mention there that your wife, Kelly, heard or was part of some type of unemployment scam. And I wanted to, to follow up and, and find out a little more detail because we didn't get a chance to chat about that. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, Kelly, the same one, the same creative mind behind our uh, opening theme song. <laughs> she um, got this letter and it was kind of it kind of got uh, misplaced in a stack of letters. We, we leave our letters stacked on our kitchen counter like i think a lot of people do vertical stackers (laughs) yeah we don't even have a we don't even have an organizational system we just kind of let them sit there and when it collects dust we'd say oh what's this one let's check it so we opened this one up and it's a couple months old and it, it we um it was from the new york state department of labor and i have it right here i'm gonna i'll read a little bit i won't bore you with the entire letter but i'll read you just so the listeners can kind of get the the cadence and and understand that you know maybe we can help them after this to understand the difference between you know legitimate um, correspondences and scams and you know those kinds of things. But anyway, um, let's see. A claim for unemployment insurance benefits was recently filed using your identity. We believe that someone using identity information stolen from you either recently or in the past attempted to file this claim. You may have received notices from the Department of Labor regarding an unemployment claim filed in your name. This is not, not as underlined, not due to a breach in uh, NYSDOL, uh, New York State Department of Labor system, but may be the result of prior data breach of other institutions over time, such as banks, insurance companies, employer. Anyway, uh, if you scroll down further, they have a highlighted thing that says there is no need for you to contact the Department of Labor at this time. If a, a representative representative of law enforcement needs a different, different, additional information, they will contact you directly. And they go on to give some things about uh, verifying ID.me and, and you know uh, new ny.gov and you know websites you can visit to learn more about this stuff. But it's um, 
you know, we're going to, I think we're going to continue to see this kind of stuff. You know, a lot of it's coming down to COVID and unemployment, I think is what kind of spawned it all. So you're getting massive uh, unemployment claims and you're always going to get a a small portion of those unemployment claims are going to be fraudulent. And so I guess one of the best ways for people to, to rip it off is to literally steal or borrow someone's ID and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm unemployed. I want to, I want my, I want my fair shake, but it was, uh, yeah, it was alarming until you read the entire thing. And then I started thinking about more and realized like, you know what, this is, this is most likely legitimate. I'm never a hundred percent certain that any of these things aren't, you know, couldn't possibly be a scam. So, but it didn't, it never, it never asked for anything, any specific information, any confidential information. It didn't even tell me to, to visit a website. It just said, oh, if you want to learn more about this, you can visit our site. And of course the site is a legitimate, you know, government site. So I'm not worried about that either. And there was no phone calls, no text messages, none of those email kind of scammy things that these, uh, types of correspondences do usually come from when they are a scam. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you think about this? Sometimes if it's written in government speak, in other words, it rambles on and on with all the acronyms and buzzwords, um, that could be that it's, it's just somebody that's really skilled at writing a fraudulent mail. Um, so the flag goes up and said, wait a second here. Usually there's some type of call to action, just like, uh, somebody that's trying to sell you something that they want you to visit a website, want you to pick up a phone number so they could garnish and steal further information. You said you didn't see anything specific in there about that? No, I, um, no, it, it, there really was no information. Uh, you know, they knew, obviously they know they knew her mailing address. It was our old mailing address. This letter was okay. forwarded, which is part of the reason why it ended up in a stack of old mail. Cause it was just old stuff that, that got forwarded to us, you know, way. And it, and it was months and months old. So mm. we knew there was no, there was no urgency in the message and we weren't that worried because, you know, of course we checked, we looked at bank statements and things like that just to make sure that something, nothing was amiss on that end. Mm-hmm. And and so we're like, okay, this is a few months old. The letter says, don't worry. It's not an emergency. So it, she very well could have been compromised, but they also went on to say that, um, it's been uh, the the kind of their way of saying the situation has been remedied. There's no cause for alarm. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm just wondering how many other people have gotten letters like this, and how so you know, and how many people are are getting worried, whether it's needless or needlessly. Sure. And what I did too is a quick search when you mentioned it and started reading the letter on the IRS website. Um, and the title under identity theft and unemployment benefits, they have some information posted and I'll just read it in part states have experienced a surge in fraudulent unemployment claims filed by organized crime rings using stolen identities. Criminals are using these stolen identities to fraudulently collect benefits across multiple states. Um, then it says you may be a victim of unemployment identity theft if you received. And the first thing on there is mail from a government agency about an unemployment claim or payment, and you did not recently file for unemployment benefits. This includes unexpected payments or debit cards and could be from any state. So my guess is if she didn't recently file for unemployment benefits, it's highly probable that it's a unemployment scam. Yeah, no, she never, she didn't file for any unemployment uh, benefits. So yeah, it, it it's, 
I don't, well, I don't think she was uh, scammed. I do believe that someone used her name fraudulently in, in an attempt to collect those benefits. Yeah, that, that could be. And, and they also have here kind of in the footnote um, under unemployment benefits, the different websites that people are going to, they're set up by cyber criminals for the purpose of unlawfully capturing consumers' personal information. To lure consumers to these fake websites, fraudsters send spam text messages, emails purporting to be from uh, SWA and containing a link. Fake websites are designed to trick consumers into thinking they're applying from un for unemployment benefits and disclosing personal identifiable information and other sensitive data. Uh, and ultimately, the information can be used by fraudsters to commit identity theft. Uh, so if you read some of that, information there it clearly sounds like it's probably tied to a scam in that they're hoping to find a way to for her to divulge more information some of the attacks too are one two attacks in other words you get a notice in the mail and then they text you because they also stole your mm -hmm. maybe your, your mobile number and they're hoping that well wait a minute i just got a letter on this that's right oh here's the official thing from the irs let me click on this link and then that's a redirect to a fake irs web site mm -hmm. that maybe discloses the last four digits of your phone number and says you recently probably received a letter please make sure that you update this information yeah, or you yeah. know we're from the fraudulent department blah 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 so it, sometimes it, it, that combo effect where you it, get an email or text in addition to a, a physical piece of letter that fools right. people oh yeah and that could That's, be what it is too it's almost like a multi-factor authentic authentication like a twist on that you know except mm -hmm. the bad the bad guys are using it to gain your trust exactly. instead of the other way around yeah like a reverse multi-factor authentication that's a really good point and and i think all of these things are the perfect storm if in fact somebody did go on and file an unemployment um claim and, mm -hmm. and right now with so many people in flux with jobs and covid and so on and so forth the craziness out there there's probably a fair amount of people that are in fact filling out unemployment benefits. And now's the perfect time to propagate a scam like that because it'll be the most effective, even if they just blank it out to everyone. Mm -hmm. So who knows? And maybe in, in part, the, the postage that they used to mail her that letter was um, counterfeit postage, as we talked about in our right. last episode. So right, right. The, 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 there's different layers as we unpeel these onions to these scams. It makes it fun. But well, let's jump into our first story there. Again, that story from The Verge. Um, and maybe I'll just share a, a brief blurb and then get your thoughts on it. Um, the story title there was half of internet connected devices and hospitals are vulnerable to hacks report fines. And I think right away, when we think about internet connected devices, IOT internet of things um, in this d d device security report there, what comes to mind is anything that that's kind of life-saving type of apparatus that's used in a hospital uh, IV pumps, infusion pumps, this and that. And I think there were some stats that, uh, did you notice any stats that kind of caught your eye immediately in that report? Yeah. The, the IV pump thing caught my eye. Cause I think they, I don't, I mean, this, I don't know how they got all these IOT devices and kind of, I don't know if they ping them or they survey or how they do it, but it's this company, uh, cybersecurity company scenario scenario yeah this is this all comes from their 2022 uh, 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 state of healthcare IOT device security report and um, they said 73 percent 
uh, of IV pumps or also, I guess infusion pumps is another way to say that, you know, the things sitting right by your bedside that, mm-hmm. that either it could be a saline solution. It could be, um, you know, life-saving med- medication. It could be pain, pain relief, morphine, whatever. 73% of those suffer from this potential vulnerability. And uh, the overall, the report looked at over 10 million devices spread across 300 hospitals and healthcare facilities. Wow. That's um, yeah. And I was, it's funny. I was just at the, uh, the heart doctor um, the other day here in Long Beach and um, they did a, first I wore a, a monitor for one day on my heart, just, you know, act, my normal activity during the day. And then it monitored while I was sleeping. So it's looking at my higher heart rate for when I'm exercising or doing anything, you know, more than just sitting around. And then of course it looks at my resting heart rate and then my sleeping heart rate and all that stuff. And I came in, returned the heart monitor, and then they put me on a, a, an ultrasound and they did a mm-hmm. quick scan and they wanted to look at all the ventricles and make sure it was, it was kind of fascinating because the guy had a touch screen and he was like, he was, mm-hmm. he was measuring all these distances in real times from these uh, uh, arteries and, and heart ventricles. And of course he had the monitor adjusted so I can actually see it. I was turning my head and looking at it in wow. real time, the heart pump and all this stuff, but that precise instrument was also in this survey um, as one of the things that could have been uh, vulnerable uh, in, in their list of, in their list of vulnerabilities. So it really makes you think like, not only it makes you think like, what, what could they possibly do um, to, to hurt patients or to, you know, steal uh, medical data and, and resell it or whatever they're going to do with that. But you know, how, how, how can I protect myself? Um, sure. you know, I remember as I left, I asked the guy, Hey, can I, can I get those images? Cause that, that those images, you were, were really cool. Uh, I want those. And he's like, yeah, you got to request them, but we'll give you, uh, you'll give it to you on DVD, but you know, we could take you off to burn it and all that stuff. And I was like, all right, uh, maybe, maybe some other time, but, uh, I wonder how easy it is for a, a hacker to get those images. <laughs> Yeah, you think about some of that, and especially the point that stood out from that article, and you you kind of even touched on it, that they they sourced the data in the report that they analyzed from 10 million different devices, which is pretty scary how many devices are out there that are deemed vulnerable, um, you know, the pool of that that they could possibly target and hack, and that's that's only a subset of what's actually out there, I'm sure there's a lot more out there, but yeah. Um, and, and vulnerabilities could be something really minor to something major, but usually anything tied to human health and, and monitoring is really serious. I think of something like, what if, what if a hacker got in to, to you specifically, your collected data, but now they modified it to the point where they showed you had super low heart rate or you know, super fast or you, or you had something that was you know, not a steady beat, which, which may cause other types of diagnosis to be performed. And if a doctor took that literal, they may prescribe you on certain medication or or prescribe other treatments that you might have to test that you have to get. So Mm -hmm. it could send you down the wrong path for treatment that could be very dangerous, especially anything involving a heart. Yeah. These To know. Yeah. Yeah. And these are, I mean, this is, and this sampling they did, it's just a small pool of all the IOT devices out mm-hmm. there in our homes and businesses, and of course in hospitals. And I'm sure most of these are wired, but you know, we 
we did didn't we do some work with uh with GE and and Abiomed way back in the day that was more it was more geared to wireless stuff yeah. right yeah we we actually for 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 GE medical division um there is a lot of apparatus in the hospital that are wirelessly controlled and you've probably seen that um they'll have a central desk and they'll get an alert that somebody has a certain type of arrhythmia or their, their heart slows down or their breathing function, that equipment will wirelessly communicate to a central desk that there's usually one person monitoring multiple patients and they'll just get a blip on the screen with an alarm. Mm-hmm. When, when the wireless protocol and communication uh, fails, that's a problem. And typically what happens is you have to take that specific medical monitoring device outside of the hospital get it looked at and then get it serviced and you have to get it recertified. So the process is time and money. It's very expensive. One of the devices that we developed was, it was a, a signal generator that worked at those specific frequencies. And what, what they could do is take our handheld signal generator and actually insert a signal and transmit at a very low power directly into the device just to verify that the communications was working. And we saw tons of them. And it allowed them to work in the license bands that they that they use within hospitals. The good news is we could say there were five pieces of equipment and they were lined up and something was questionable. They could verify right there on the spot. Hey, these four all have wireless communications working flawlessly, but this one unit, it's not transmitting and receiving properly. Take that one out and get it serviced instead mm-hmm. of sending all five of them back because there was some question that came up. So it's really important that... Um, equipment has the ability to be tested on site and save time and money, especially think about what's going on with COVID and ventilators and other equipment that there's shortages and many of which uh, do have wireless monitoring capability and they don't have enough staff to actually do this. So some of the processes have to be uh, automated and that's where hackers step in and try to cause mishaps or a ransomware attack or other targeted attacks just to disrupt so they could try to find ways that they can quickly gain money. It's really a mess. And with the other uh, item, you talked about Abiomed. That project was a long time ago. And, and we actually worked on a, an RF link uh, for the first artificial hearts that were developed. And this was a, um, a link that they did not have to cut into the body, but you could get just close proximity, like an RFID or near-field communication, if you envision, mm-hmm. that would allow it to actually download data collected data that was inside the heart so that it could be analyzed outside, which is kind of a, a fascinating project. We work, work just on that narrow radio frequency component of the communication link between the artificial heart and the, the data collector outside. But um, there again, that was the early days of artificial hearts and uh, implants and things like that. Things have come a long way since then, but the importance of having that wireless communication is key. And more importantly, now in the days of cybersecurity, making sure that there's no vulnerabilities that are being exploited. Yeah, I have a few uh, relatives that have uh, implants in their backs to uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, not stimulate the nerve, but to kind of almost dull it or deaden it. So to, for, you know, pain that they suffered. Kind of numb it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they, they require wireless links because there's a, there's actually a battery, some, some kind of power storage in there, but you know, you don't want to plug it in physically. So you, you have to, you know, you wirelessly charge it every like few months, you have to put your back up against this charger thing and wirelessly charge it. So it's really kind of 
really uh, cyber high tech stuff going out there. Yeah, and, and that's important. I think the wireless charging, it, it still has to come a long way, but we see that on all modern smartphones now. Even some of the newer modern vehicles have built-in wireless charging. So you can just drop your smartphone there and it'll allow you to, to charge um, while you're hopefully not using your, your device and driving, of course, until the car becomes autonomous. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but it's important. And I do remember just one thing popped into my head. I remember when I, I was given a keynote at Secure World Show, and this was a couple years ago before we really heard about it, but I had a great discussion with a guy that came up. Uh, he, he bought a copy of my book and he was fascinated with it. Cybersecurity is everybody's business that, that, that you co-authored with me. And he, he was really curious because he had um, an infusion pump and he was, he was tethered to it. Um, and he was concerned that what, what's the, the ability to actually hack that. And I, apparently he said he had to plug it in somehow and download information and, mm. and worried about charging. And to what extent um, could a hacker actually target him and some of the vulnerabilities? So people that, that are, are, are using these things that have connectivity, internet connectivity, it is a concern and they're worried about them. So I think it, more has to be done to make sure that they're secure rule out the vulnerabilities. And I'm glad that the reports like this are put out there to just raise awareness about IoT device security. Um, so these things can, can continually be addressed. Yeah. Um, well, let's, what do you say we move on to our next story? Um, this yeah. one, uh, it really involves, it's kind of, I, 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 I found this story partly because it, it, it involves the log 4J uh, story, which we, we covered a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, I think. Um, but it also raises kind of a broader question I thought of when uh, uh, maybe a discussion to be had about, um, you know, open versus closed, you know, so when I'm talking about source code mm -hmm. in the uh, programmer uh, community. But uh, I found it on a, a bleeping computer. I think I found it on Verge first, and then they reference the original story. So I went, I like to go back to the original source and, and, you know, credit them. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, I don't know if you know about this, this GitHub, it's a kind of a code library code repository. And, and there was a, it was a big purchase actually Microsoft bought them a year or two back, I think. Um, and so it's a, it's a Microsoft property and it's, it's basically a, you know, a place where, uh, coders go to, uh, trade or borrow or sell or I don't know how I don't know how the marketplace exactly works but they use different code sources when you don't want to code something from scratch you know you, you get something that's pre-coded and you yep. it's in a library and you grab and you say I need this to, do, to accomplish this in this programming that I'm working on but anyway there was a um, someone a developer I don't know if this is their real name but Marek Squires <laughs> they they introduced some kind of uh, malware code into one of the libraries that creates a, an infinite code loop. And it, it prints out a bunch of gibberish, but among the gibberish, you can make out that it says liberty, 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 or something like that. So there's obviously, there's something behind this. It wasn't just a, a computer glitch. There's a person behind this. And then as the story developed, I think people came to know that he was this developer was bitter about, I think, not being paid for a job that he did for a, some Fortune 500 company. And so his idea was to kind of contaminate the public well, if you will. You know, So you have this, this open source community sharing everything, but now 
it, it can be contaminated by someone with, you know, that has a, a grudge or, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't a direct uh, ransomware attack that we see so often these days, but it was almost like mischief in the form of a protest for, you know, not being paid for work he did. But um, I don't know, what are your, you know, what are your thoughts on like this, uh, on these types of things? Uh, You know, open source is usually supposed to be some, a lot of people swear by and say it's safer than your, your closed proprietary systems, because you have an entire community that can go in and debug and find these type of problems. But this one snuck through and it caused problems with things as big as like, uh, you know, Amazon's, uh, uh, AWS systems, you know, they use some of these open codes because everyone swears by it. So, you know, what's the, what's the potential for danger here when, when something like this can happen? Well, I think, I think one thing that pops out of my head right away with, with GitHub, it, and it is an awesome uh, platform. I think there's reported over 73 million developers that kind of are active, contributing, pulling um, software off, posting software, being it's an open source community. And what that gives them is a little bit of free reign if they want to um, embed things somewhat secretly, even if it's something like this where it just randomly uh, or, or prints out liberty, liberty, liberty. They have, in other words, a secret agenda or a mission that they want. It reminds me of um, kind of how spam kind of came about initially in, mm-hmm. in a code. And it just had, you know, spam just kind of gibberish, which then coined the term spam, useless junk that's in uh, um, a document or in an email Um, so there's really no from the outside there's no purpose it may be more of an inside joke or something what the person actually coded in here but it's probably a hacktivist that is trying to send a message and the question is to me from a cybersecurity perspective you know are there are there hidden vulnerabilities in a lot of these software modules and i would say the answer is probably yes most of them may not be that serious, but some of them, yeah, they're really serious. And it's hard then because if you've got thousands or tens of thousands or millions of downloads for different mm-hmm. APIs and code that are used in whole or in part in other programs that are used globally from open source companies, and now there's a patch or an update, how many of those people can go in there and actually patch it or know to patch it or care to patch it? Mm-hmm. They probably don't. And that, that's similar to the problem with Log4j. Um, they're able to exploit it because it is open source. And, and, and that's really concerning. How are you able to contact all those companies and force them to update? You can't. Look at, look at some of the strengths and weaknesses of Microsoft over the years. Anytime a older Windows um, is no longer supported with, with security patches, what happens? The hackers have a field day. And some of them innocent just trying to hack and fool around with people that are maybe too cheap to upgrade the, the, the Microsoft OS. And others, it's, it's really for stealing intellectual property. They may be stealing credit cards, credentials, personal information. Who knows? So mm-hmm. it becomes the Wild West. And I think that's why stories like this are really, really good. But it is true. This potentially could impact thousands of apps that you and I and everyone else out there is using without us even realizing it. And hence, that's why there's so many breaches again and again and again. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, the old phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's when that kind of that kind of 
uh, common sense mentality butts heads with this hidden codes because these these things are broken, but you don't know that. So how how do you know whether you should upgrade your patch unless a big story like this comes out um, and and people are warned and told and provided with those security uh, you know those OS updates and those security patches. You don't unless that's out there. You you don't know, and so you might be running malware for years on your system, and they could be collecting all types of things from you. Yeah. 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 It's some, some scary stuff. And I think the, the outpouring of some of this over time will be the, the future hacks and we'll learn quickly how these cyber attacks are, are unfolding and w- why, because of, of some of the code with, with things like this. And of course, log4j and many others where there are vulnerabilities buried in open source, um, yeah. software modules that the people are just unaware of so and just just this week i mean we've saw um google and microsoft i think and facebook was there they met with uh, white house officials and there's a there's a call to strengthen um open source code uh because those companies specifically those you know trillion dollar companies they rely heavily on that kind of stuff. Um, even though they also have their own proprietary codes that they don't want to share, they rely on open source plugins and all types of, of these libraries to make their systems work across the internet. So it's, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a, it raises a much broader question that we really don't have the time to get into on, on this podcast, but you know, what is, uh, what do you trust more a closed system like an Apple, for instance, or a, an, an open system, uh, you know, something that uses uh, a security that that's been vetted by a, a community. Um, you know, if you can if you can plant malware in the open system, it sort of weakens the argument that those standards are stronger than a closed one. But you know, like, you know. yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways when you, when you look at it. I, I think if you asked me prior to this story and prior to to log4j, I would have probably said, hey, security is kind of built in by the masses with, with open source stuff. You know, they care, they maintain it, they don't have an agenda. It, it's maintained by the crowd in a sense of, of people that, that care in the space. Um, and when you contrast it now to, to the, the two um, with, with GitHub and log4j being open source and some of the fallout that's happened and going to happen, then quickly I, I go back to and say, geez, maybe, maybe Apple having a closed source uh, ecosystem where they can vet and keep things secure is, is the way to go and is going to ultimately be more secure and easier to maintain and force its user base of, of hardware users, especially for iPhone and computers and such to do the security patches. And, 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 and ultimately that may survive. So I think the jury's still out, but um, it's interesting. It really is interesting because mm-hmm. more and more I keep looking at everything and seeing, wow, this, this a couple of years ago, my opinion was very different than it is now when you start to see these vulnerabilities that, that are popping up everywhere, be it hardware, software, big tech, small tech, you name it, it's everywhere. Yeah. All right. Well, our final story Um I could just as easily call this one fun with numbers as I can. Yeah. <laughs> the headline, I mean, 68.7 billion 
that uh, Microsoft pays uh, for uh, active. I know it's a cash uh, deal too. All I think. cash deal, yeah, largest all cash deal ever. Wow, in the United States, that blows my mind. That's that's some some big numbers, almost seventy billion dollars. Jeez. Yeah, but you can see why. I mean, when I started digging in, looking at some other numbers, and seeing that the um, what is this? Oh, uh, the global video game global video game revenue is about 180 billion. And now if now if you take you think you think sports, the entire sports of North America and the entire movie industry of North North America. Those are things we hear about all the time. Oh, a blockbuster movie, oh, the Super Bowl, oh, all these things. Though video games globally are bigger than those two things combined. That's how big games are and it's yeah. it's nuts when you when you look at it in in that perspective. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's such a, a stark contrast. And, and the cost for gaming systems is not that cheap. I mean, if you go back to the days when we were um, in, into stuff with the Atari 2600 brings back fond memories. We, we joke and chat about that uh, back in the early in the 80s and such. The actual console, complete console with controllers and everything was about 40 bucks or so the cost of it now if you look at some of these more advanced gaming systems they're pretty expensive what they cost and what they sell for and then not to mention the cost of the game which is understandable because it takes a whole team of programmers and the graphics and sound are unbelievable the gameplay is so different than the gameplay of the 80s and even into the 90s when i when i reflect back um, night and day, but, but it's, it's like, it reminds me of maybe a, a blockbuster movie. It costs a lot of money, huge investment in time and money and resources for the games these days. And I think that's why it's become such a big business. Mm-hmm. And, and even though the name Activision goes back into the eighties, which were really a lot of the programmers, I think that they were Atari programmers, the story goes, um, they were getting discouraged because they didn't have their name associated with the success of some of the great games that were being launched and back in the days on the Atari 2600 and then the computers, the 400 and the, the 800 and the, the game console, the 5200 and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I think for that fact, they, they, they spawned off and left Atari and became programmers at Activision. And, and again, this story is decades old, but it helps you to see that it's a very competitive market. And now some of the things that this article discussed there, I, I was a little surprised and was unaware of, of the, the, the controversy of the sexual misconduct and discrimination of employees mm-hmm. that that's all going on behind the scenes at Activision. Uh, it really starts to affect the company's brand, their image and, and their bottom line to the, the stock. Yeah. I mean, there were major calls and they're, they're still ongoing for this uh, Activision CEO to step down due to all of that controversy. And this is where the story starts to really kind of break down and get fishy. And, you know, my antennas go up and my uh, and I'm wondering just how much of it like, first of all, what's your is it is this even going to happen? Because there's, you know, there's a, a fair trade and, um, you know, there's issues here. Uh, I don't know if the government is even going to let this deal go through because Sony's already complaining because, you know, obviously Microsoft owns Xbox. So Mm -hmm. now when you have Microsoft purchasing Blizzard, what's to keep them from making all Blizzard Activision titles exclusive to Xbox and cut Sony out of the deal? That's 
you know, that's anti-trade right there. And on top of that, you have this weird um, payout to the CEO. Um, He would receive, you know, their stock was taking a hit because you, as you mentioned, all of these uh, scandals had been going on for the past, I think, six months of calls of resignation and everything. So suddenly the, this uh, bid to buy Activision goes through and the stock shoots up, I think 20 or 25% in one day, right there, it erased all of their losses and it, it, and it puts a huge chunk of change three, some $375 million into this, into the CEO's pocket. Now, he can he can resign and you know cash that check and and walk away or he could stay there. I don't know what the the, the deals of the uh, purchase are, but I did notice one other uh, tidbit was that if there's if it is breaking up broken up by you know antitrust regulators, um, Microsoft would still have to pay. There, no deal would go through, but Microsoft would have to pay three billion dollars to Activ- Activision just for the hassle of trying to to do this acquisition and then not having it happen. So it seems like no matter what, Activision and their CEO is going to have their, you know, have their cake and get to eat it too, yep. you know? And I think part of my gut is telling me Microsoft, I mean, they've been around forever. They're smart people at Microsoft. They're not going to pursue something like this unless they really saw a good long-term, um, gain that they could appreciate so they really mm-hmm. see the future of gaming oh, could yeah. be very uh could, could be very profitable but only if they can buy their way into it and they've got a lot of cash reserves so it makes sense for them to do it i'm sure there's a lot of other companies that would love to be able to jump in and have the same deep pockets as they do mm-hmm. the, the fact that there's the, the you know the risk of paying three billion to activision for those breakup fees uh, if the deal doesn't go through, it's kind of scary. And a deal like this to get it through the courts and the antitrust and so on and so forth is probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 18 months. So this is, you know, they got a long play in mind. They see business down the road. They see a, a really good potential. And I, and I agree, it probably is. Um, but man, it can be painful if the deal does go south. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a big payout. But, but it shows you how strong the, the video game business is. And, and I just think of my own son, um, he's big Xbox and it's Xbox live and it allows him to play whenever, wherever with people. He does a lot of the, um, the games like, uh, Ro- 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 Roblox, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you can connect him with other people and, and it, it's lucrative and he's always saying, Hey, I want to, you know, buy, buy more things on Xbox and have my streaming and, and, and upgrade my, thing and we're buying them cards and this and that and games constantly it's very lucrative when you and i used to buy a game uh what do we pay you know you pay 20 30 bucks for a cartridge and it lasts you forever it felt like because we play the game till the cartridge wore out (laughs) now it's all streaming and it's it's interactive and different gameplay so i think they can really exploit a lot more out of their audience and get a lot more return long term when they've got a loyal xbox customer and they've got a good good lineup of games, and now they're going to enhance it with Activision Blizzard. Man, the sky's the limit in what they can do. I think. Yeah, the reoccurring revenue uh, on a modern video game, especially one that requires you know network playing over the internet, is is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you think of a, a blockbuster movie, even one that 
that makes a billion dollars, let's say, that thing only has about four or five weeks of life in a movie theater, you know, and then it hits the home video market and pay-per-view and streaming and it gets it gets another maybe half a billion from that and international release. But that's nothing that pales in comparison to titles like Call of Duty, which mm -hmm. are still popular. The, you know, Call of Duty four and five, or I don't even know. I used to play uh, back about 10 years ago. I was into that stuff and I would play it for months. I purchased, I would buy the disc, you know, this is back when you, you had to buy the disc and it would be, you know, about 60 bucks. I think they're up to $70 now is the average retail console game. And so you're paying that upfront. And then you're paying to access a network of, of so you could play multiplayer against all these other people. And yep. then you're paying for all these kind of loot boxes and add-ons and modules and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, costumes. And I'm going to, I'm going to make my gun look pretty and I'm going to, yeah. you know, all, that stuff is kind of swag or something to add to it. Yeah. Giant revenue potential. And it Ooh. just goes on for months and months, right up until they're ready for the next release. And then it just, it just goes and it, it's yeah. an endless cycle. So it, you can understand why uh, Microsoft uh, and by the way, Microsoft, uh, they own Minecraft too. I think they, I don't remember if they paid a billion for it, but that was, wow. that was like a, a, maybe four or five years ago, that acquisition, some people, you know, turn, you know, turn their heads and wondered, is this really going to pay off? And from all accounts I've heard, it's paid off, you know, a long time ago, it already paid back. So I think they're just taking that you know, similar strategy and just upping the game by throwing all this money at um, Activision to see what happens in the next five, 10 years with games. Sure, sure. And I, I think I'm just trying to reflect back at four kids go through my mind. The last four kids I talked to, I love talking about games always. And I'm always asking, hey, what are some games you play or what's, you know, your top 10 game list or whatever. And guess what? Minecraft is on every kid's top 10 game list. I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, and to me, the surprising part is you look at the graphics and they're not that good. They remind me of the, you know, right, right. 40 by 40 K <laughs> resolution or whatever you'd see on the old Apple and Atari games, very blocky and funny and stuff. But mm -hmm. I think it's the creative side and the community that they fostered. That's what is unique about it. Kids used to go outside and, you know, kick the ball or play sports more. Now they tend to, um, hang out with their buddies. I mean, my son hangs out with a kid a couple doors down. They don't ever play together, but they're playing games together online as well as the other kids in the school. So they, they tend to associate that way. It's very different than when you and I it used to be and in, in, invite the neighborhood kids over. We'd all play Atari and fight for the joysticks. Now kids are all in their own homes connected to the internet and playing, playing these games virtually and having a blast with it. So um, I think people need to realize that things have changed and how much money that companies like this can actually command is, is staggering. Yeah. Well, I guess cool uh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, and um, well, before we uh, end this episode and, and uh, see what you're up to, I just wanted to mention one more time that this episode is uh, sponsored by cyber coast, uh, Cyberlytica, excuse me, uh, and they engage in proactive cybercrime intelligence. Um, you can learn more about Cyberlytica on their website at uh, www.cyberlytica.com. Um, 
before we go, uh, what are you, uh, have you, have you been up to anything lately? Um, doing lots of, uh, lots of interviews and things on different subjects, a lot with, um, a lot of stuff I've been talking about with, uh, cybercrime magazine and cybercrime radios, a, a slew of cryptocurrency, uh, stories that have been hitting the headlines have been covering on, on the radio program each morning. Uh, so I encourage people to, you know, visit our websites and you could easily get the widget there and listen into, uh, Cybercrime Radio, if you go to bvsystems.com or scottschober.com on the bottom right, I believe it is, you can click on there and listen to it. It's 24-7 streaming of Cybercrime Radio, and it's really interesting stuff, but a lot of things about uh, crypto. I think it's become fascinating between crypto mining and uh, a lot of the exchanges and things are are getting hacked, and it's, it's not for... For pennies, this is for for serious bucks. Tens of millions of dollars each and every day are getting stolen. Um, digital wallets, uh, the ICO exchanges, and everything under the sun. So, um, you know, certainly tune in there to hear some of the headlines and some of the stuff that's taking place. I did an interesting story with uh, NTD Television on uh, uh, v- VPN Labs talking about uh, Europol, how it's shutting that down, and how VPN Labs was kind of being used as a conduit to place malware by cyber criminals, which I thought was kind of interesting when I was doing the research, because I'm always encouraging people to get a VPN because it's encrypted and it doesn't reveal your, your location and gives you some anonymity there. So it's good for, for being safe, especially if you're trying to visit a, a hotspot or, or something like that. Yet here, cyber criminals are exploiting VPNs to their advantage and to actually use that as a conduit to place malware. So no matter what we do, when we're trying to use good to stay safe, we have to realize that cyber criminals are flocking to good things that we're using to actually work against us. So it's really important to be a, an educated shopper and do your research before just signing up for anything, especially free VPNs. I encourage people, don't do it. It's a mistake. Be, be cautious. I, I always encourage people go to PC Magazine. They do a top 10 review of the best VPNs that are secure, affordable, and effective. Um, so go to trusted sources and do your research before you're just signing up for any of them out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember uh, wor- working on that chapter with you in, um, in cybersecurity is everybody's business about VPNs. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. All the research, I went right out and I purchased one. I, you know, I, I looked through all the free ones, of course. And I, and I remember all in all the research that it, I just didn't see any value to it for the little dollar savings you get. There's other inherent risks and plus you have to deal with ads and, and you have to deal with legitimate companies kind of spying on you because you're allowing them to access your IP and see that data traffic move over so that they can learn about what you um, want as a consumer and then just sell back products to you anyway. So Mm -hmm. I figure for the small fee of, um, I think we're, you know, I think it was a one-time buy actually. So I I purchased it for like a hundred bucks or something like that. And it was a lifetime of VPN after that. And so I find that to be reassuring and it's also useful too. I like to sometimes change my uh, IP address and pretend I'm from another country. And then that lets you, I don't, I don't know if this is considered illegal or not, but you can, you can view a lot of different content on Netflix in 
Belgium that you couldn't view on, yes. you know, here in the States. And it's, it's very interesting to see the way they kind of program their networks for, for various countries. So it's fun to do that. And sometimes we do research on the dark web and of course you want a VPN for that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're there. You really want a good VPN and secure encrypted provides you some anonymity and I always say, too, if you're going to go on the dark web, don't use your daily computer or anything tied to work. Use a dedicated kind of a scrub computer that uh, you could afford to lose because the chance that you, you download some type of malware un, unbeknownst to you is, is pretty high probability. So you got to really be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be dangerous. And I think the other thing is for, for sporting events, if you start to follow sports, the number of people that are frustrated when they want to watch their team. Um, and they didn't want to pay for the, you know, the three, $400 yearly football package because of all the, the, the cost for the franchise and everything else. And all the restrictions that come into play, a mm-hmm. lot of people turn to the VPN. So it looks like they're in this state or this country mm-hmm. so they can actually view the game that they want because it's, it's blocked out. And, and that could drive you nuts. If you're, if you're a big sports fan, it has been a great episode of cyber coast to coast. I'm uh, Scott Schober here on the East coast and here signing out. And I'm Craig Schober over on the West coast and we'll talk to you next week. With your host Scott and Craig Schober.